Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Heavenly Father, now having hopefully worshipped you well, having hopefully had our worship received with thanks by you, we now would open your word. We are so thankful for it. In every realm of life, it instructs us. In every realm of life, it interprets things for us. And Father, we ask that the portion we look at today might be living in our midst. Your Spirit might teach us and guide us through it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed people come in all shapes and sizes? All kinds of backgrounds and current circumstances. All kinds of personalities and preferences. Some are very much like you and some are completely different. Have you noticed that? And truth be told, we are naturally drawn to some members of this varied society that surrounds us more than we are to others. To use a somewhat outdated term, we favor them. Now James... James, the earthly brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, James, who wrote the little New Testament book that bears his name, James, the one who has been instructing us through what he wrote in that book for a number of weeks now, James says that that, favoring people, can be a problem. Here are his exact words. Today's key scripture, James chapter 2, the very first verse. My brothers... Ladies, this includes you too. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we believe he's glorious? Okay. So if we're then, we're the people he's talking to. James says this, don't show favoritism. Just don't do it. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word that James uses here, that's translated here, is the word phrase that's translated in the King James Bible as respecter of persons, as in the verse, God is no respecter of persons. It means God treats all people the same. James is saying, be like that. Don't show favoritism. What James is getting at is that when we decide to treat people differently according to some physical feature or some distinguishing characteristic and we favor one over another based on those differences, we fall short. We fall short of that perfection, that full maturity in Christ toward which the Spirit of God would lead us. 
The title of this whole series of messages is On to Perfection. Not sinlessly perfect lives, but full, complete, mature Christ-likeness as we go through this fallen world. And James would say if we, if we fail in the area we're talking about today, we're going to have problems getting to real Christian maturity. Now, he could have just said that, and then let us talk about it. A lot of the verses we've looked at in James, a lot of the messages we've had have been one verse long, almost like a proverb. This could be a proverb. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism, period. But I have a feeling that James and surely the Holy Spirit know just how deep-seated into us some of these things can be, that we're not even aware of them. And so James takes 12 more verses to explain that verse and to look at it from different angles. And, And so today, in contrast to any other message we've had in the book of James, it's going to cover 13 verses. Turn to somebody and say, I can't believe there's 13 verses in today's message. We've been amazed how much there is in individual... Well, here we go. We got 13 of them. Because James, and certainly the Holy Spirit convinced him, this is a topic that needs a little bit of working around and working through. And so James starts right out, in case his directive is an immediate received, or even understood, James continues on in this letter by providing what I'm calling today a Sunday morning example. Now, they had church on Sunday morning. It was the Lord's Day. Probably not in a building like this one. But when James talks about their meetings, at least one of them would be on the Lord's Day, just like we're gathering together today. So it's a Sunday morning example. We find it in verse 2, and we express it this way. A well-dressed man and a shabbily-dressed man both show up for church. Now, here's exactly how James put it. Suppose, James says, a man comes into your meeting, into your meeting, your church meeting, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also come in. Now, that would be a true distinction of people in the first century. The rich dress like it and the poor dress like it. James would be confused today. Today, the wealthiest among us sometimes look the shabbiest, right? You can pay 300 bucks for a pair of jeans that my mother would have put patches on and sent me back to school. You could even walk into a meeting today and find a preacher who looks as shabby as anybody else. James would say, wow, what have I walked into? So I'm thinking to speed this up and bring it into the 21st century, today we might have to say something like this to understand what James is talking about. What if he had said, suppose, suppose a man driving a brand new Maserati pulls into your church parking lot, and at the same time, a man driving a 25-year-old paint-faded Toyota also pulls in. Now, when they get out of those cars, they may look alike these days. A wealthy man and a poor man. They arrive at the same time and come through, in this case, our glass doors and into this room. 
It was certainly a situation that, that any congregation of believers in those early days could certainly relate to, the rich and the poor in their society. And most Christians were definitely on the bottom end of that societal ladder. Most of them were on the shabby side of things. And not many, if any of them, were wearing on a Sunday gathering expensive jewelry or fancy clothes. So then we question, what struggling young church, then or now, could not benefit from having a few well-to-do believers join their fellowship? Amen? <laughs> Can't pull yourself to say that this morning, can you? Because, you know, if I say that, he's going to say, see? But after setting the stage, providing this Sunday morning example, James then outlines for them a fairly common response. This is the way he would anticipate it would go in many churches and probably had gone in many of the churches who are reading his letter for the first time. He says, verse 3, the well-dressed man is shown favor, while the shabbily dressed man is not. Here's the exact words he used. He says, you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. And to the poor man, you say, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. I imagine, I imagine with my tongue in my cheek just a little bit, that the church's usher's manual had a section for just such a situation. You're out there greeting, you're out there going to escort people into the church, you're serving as an usher, churches used to all have them, we just have a beautiful greeter out front. Says, glad you're here, just go in there and find a spot. And there usually are some. But in those days, they probably were more formal, and I can just picture in any of those early churches, over time there's developed a, a manual, a procedure, a practice for everything, so people know how to function. Just imagine the usher's manual having a section for greeting people. It probably read something like this. Treat well-to-do people with great respect. Make sure that they know how glad you are that they have come. Make sure that they get the same treatment here that they would receive in the finest restaurant in town. Make sure they know that their table is always ready and it's the best table in the house. I'm sure, as James' letter that we're reading was originally led, read in the churches, there were any number of ushers who would think to themselves, I've been there and done that. I'm there and I'm still doing that. Or perhaps even just got done doing that. What would they expect me to do when we have a, I mean, we have a prominent guy show up? I mean, for heaven's sakes. You don't have to actually have a page in the, in the manual to tell us to treat a well-to-do guy special. He is special, right? Maybe some of those early ushers would say, and I'm going to continue to do exactly that 
for that's the kind of treatment these people expect and deserve. And they're the kind of people that would benefit our church. So knowing that's kind of the situation, James then continues on giving what I'm calling today a rather harsh evaluation. Here's what he said if they had acted in such a way or even thought in such a way. He says, verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves? We know the ugliness of the word discrimination and he means it in its most ugly form. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think I could take the word rather out of there and just say that's a, that's a harsh evaluation. It has a sting to it. Such an evaluation would, would hit our imagined ushers and, and the church manual writers right between their eyes. James is saying that their strategy... Their strategy of of treating well-to-do visitors has the devil's fingerprints all over it. He said, it's evil. And rather than build Christ's church, such a strategy can actually do great damage to it. Now, reading that observation, that evaluation this week, caused me to formulate our key observation of the morning that I'd phrase this way. Here it is, today's key observation. Favoritism is the result of an evil, and I'm going to call it today an unsound thought process. James says, verse four, if you're doing this, if you're doing this, favoring the, the rich over the poor, favoring the well-to-do over the not-so-well-off, have you not become judges evaluating, comparing people together, judges with evil thoughts. So there's something in the thinking of people that then causes them to do that. And James says the doing of it is not good, but they're going to keep doing it until their thoughts change. Because there's a way of thinking in these situations that just lead to those kind of actions. You see, favoritism can derail us individually, as much as it can derail us corporately. So if we're thinking about the church as a whole or we're just thinking about ourselves individually, we need to resist the practice of favoritism personally if we're going to progress in our journey toward Christ's toward maturity. Now this morning, as we talk about this subject, I'm going to restrict our discussion to the example of favoritism that James gave. You know, we can think many, many areas where favoritism comes into play, where we favor one person, one group, one idea over another. But James gave us the one, the rich and the poor, so we're going to just stick with that. And I trust the Holy Spirit will help us apply James' insight to all realms of our life, wherever it comes in. But hopefully we will avoid being caught up in it wherever we're tempted by it. So now, if we can understand how favoritism comes about, then we can more successfully resist practicing it and continue to make progress on our spiritual journey. 
Once we know what it is, we can more easily say, I'm not going to do that. So here's the observation, the one that I've just shared, that favoritism is the result of an evil thought process. Well, it arises from thoughts. This morning, I'd like to share four of them with you. Now, I've chosen these four thoughts because James, through these next verses, kind of answers these thoughts without these thoughts actually being in the text. The answer or the countering reality is in the text. So I read through it and say to myself, why did he say that? What was he trying, what thought was he trying to encounter by that comment? And so what I've tried to do is give to us this morning four of the thoughts, four unsound thoughts, and look at them, consider whether they are really part of our thinking, and then we're going to read what we're calling James' clarifying reality. Thinking, here's what we think is so, here's James clarifying, here's what's really so. And so you've got to get your mind over here where James is, then over here where maybe our thoughts begin. So here we go. We're going to have unsound thought, one, two, three, four, clarifying reality, one, two, three, four, and then bang, we'll be done. Unsound thought one, riches reflect the blessing of God. We should favor those that God has favored. That has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Blessing, riches reflect the blessing of God. We should favor those that God has favored. Certainly there's a tendency that we all have to fall prey to that particular line of thinking. We commonly use the phrase God's blessings. We speak of God's blessings whenever riches of any sort are obtained. We easily and we frequently link material success and spiritual success together in our minds. And so as a result, we frequently applaud the material accomplishments of professing believers. It seems so natural to respond to say, God is blessing them. God has really blessed them. So we respond that way frequently. Sometimes we wonder, though, why isn't God blessing me like that? But is that how it really is? When good things, when wealth, maybe even health, when good things just flow into people's lives, is it always the result of God just blessing them because they are them? James says, what I'm calling a clarifying reality one that we find in verse 5, express it this way, God frequently chooses the poor of this world to experience the riches of the kingdom. It's like God chooses to bless the poor and it doesn't show up in their bank account. So we wouldn't even know they're being blessed. So you might say we're missing it a lot, frequently. James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? Boy, is there anything more valuable than faith? To be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now there's an inheritance. 
There's an inheritance that I wouldn't trade any inheritance on earth in dollars for, would you? The inheritance of the kingdom, the eternal realm in the presence of God. You see, material accumulation doesn't really prove anything spiritually. All it proves is that you're rich. But it doesn't prove anything spiritually, does it? The coin, if we could use the phrase, the coin of the kingdom of God is generally intangible stuff. Things like the fruit of the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit. Knowing the Holy Spirit has just got his hands all over you, knowing that he is guiding you, he's, he's directing you, he's teaching you, he's training you, he's rebuking you, he's being with you, so you know you're never facing anything alone. The fullness of the Spirit, the mind of Christ. To be able to look at this world through the eyes of Jesus himself, to look at this world, thinking about things the way that Jesus himself thought about them, to have the mind of Christ, the scripture talks about, that is, that is priceless. And then ultimately, the commendation of the Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. These are the coin of the kingdom. These are the things that show true spiritual wealth. We need to know that, remember that. And these spiritual riches are available to every born-again believer regardless of our earthly status. So let's be sure, as we head on our way home in a few minutes, let's be sure that we clear our minds of unsound thought one. It just doesn't believe there, belong there. The thought that says riches reflect the blessing of God. We should favor those that God is obviously favoring. Just wipe that right out of our minds. Here now is unsound, unsound thought two. The rich will reward us if we pour our energy into them. Have you ever thought that? You find somebody who could really make your life work and if you just really got involved with them and really kind of buttered them up a little bit, really poured yourself into showing them how special you feel they are, that some of their benefits, some of their abundance might just roll right over into your life. We can think of that inside the church. Boy, if those rich folks came in here, I think it'd make us all better. We might all be able to enjoy more than we are now. The rich will reward us if we pour our energy into them. That's the way I'm phrasing the thought because later on I see James challenging that very thought. But that thought begins to reveal some particularly sinful thinking. You see, we're really treating the rich well in this case because we're hoping for some kind of return personally. We're actually no more concerned for them as people than we are for the poor that we've disregarded in favor of the better off. We're trying to manipulate them to our own or to the church's advantage. I tell you, sad to say, and at this point in my life I can say this 
when you've seen enough. Sad to say how many pastors or other church leaders over the years, and there's been a lot of years since James wrote these words, how many pastors or other church leaders over the years have sidled up to some arrogant, self-centered, wealthy person just because a large donation might be coming their way. This kind of thinking is not only sinful, but as James points out, it's most likely counterproductive. It seldom works out the way that the person thinking it thinks. Because this is what James shares in Clarifying Reality too. He says this, the, rain, the rich gain their riches through exploitation. Ah, it doesn't mean they're doing anything illegal, but it means they're going hard after money. And they are exploiting situations. They're taking advantage of anything that comes along. They are focused on it. They go after it. The old book says, think and grow rich. Well, he didn't mean think about how great God is and you'll grow rich. He meant think yourself into a scheme. Think yourself into a plan. Think yourself into a program. Think yourself into a business. Think yourself into a way you can manipulate people to your advantage and get what you're after which is growing rich. Exploitation. A full-bore effort to gain wealth. Sometimes by whatever means. The rich gain their riches through exploitation. They are as likely to exploit you as to bless you. Now, James puts it this way, and I have no idea what was going on in his day that led him to say this, but it's pretty, you know, eye-catching when you read it. He says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? He's writing that to to the Jewish believers of his day, scattered through the sometimes wealthy, sometimes not wealthy Roman Empire. He says, think about this. You who think you want to buddy up to the rich. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Who drag you into court? Well, you'd say, of course. They're the only ones who can afford a lawyer. They're the only ones who have something at risk. The poor people, you know, they've they've got nothing. But James is saying now, you know, you people who, who value and honor and treat the wealthy so well, Are you thinking even clearly about your strategy? Because treating them well, you think, is going to make you benefit or make the church benefit. You see, James, let me put it this way. James is saying it's very unlikely that you are going to beat the rich at their own game. They expect special treatment. They aren't surprised by it. And they don't even make special note of it when they receive it. Their idea of rewarding you, or the idea of rewarding you for providing it, doesn't even cross their minds. James might well ask, what are you thinking? Anybody who's thinking like that. It's like if you're going to pin your whole hopes for the future on some wealthy person giving you part of their wealth so that you can live better, that's a long shot. And it doesn't match up to much of life as James had experienced life. What are you thinking? 
So let's be sure there's no opportunity for unsound thought too to settle into our minds and try to build our lifestyle around. Now, remember this line from what I labeled as James' rather harsh evaluation? He says, have you not discriminated among yourselves? Well, unsound thought three answers that question in the positive, which would be, yes, we have. Because unsound thought three says this. Bottom line, some people are far more valuable than others when it comes to advancing Christ's church. I mean, now that's just the down and dirty truth believed by some. Probably not set right on the set on the platform. It's said in a, in a leader's meeting. It's said at home. It's it said somewhere else. But the bottom line is saying to yourself, there are certain people, as we're trying to build this church, if we're trying to grow or whatever, there are some people that are far more valuable than others when it comes to advancing Christ's church. And I'll tell you, like some corporate executive, every church leader can fall into the trap of categorizing people according to their ability to advance the church. And then focusing attention and effort upon getting those people to actually be productive. As I was preparing that thought this week, my mind went back now over 50 years to when Linda and I were attending Wheaton College. When Linda and I were at Wheaton College, Campus Crusade for Christ was exploding across our land. A student movement, Christian student movement, seeking to win college students for Christ. A worthy goal, a marvelous goal, a focused goal, an excellent goal. However, their strategy that we saw firsthand, being college students at the time, their strategy was to put their emphasis on reaching campus leaders first. Get the captain of the football team. Get the president of the student union. Get the best looking and the most liked. The thought was if you got the most admired to follow Christ, then many others would follow them. Don't just favor the favored if they happen to show up, but pursue them, target them, pursue them purposefully and aggressively. They're the key to the whole movement we're trying to create. Well, by them adopting and following that strategy, the impression was given to the broader campus community that the ordinary student need not apply. We're going after the important people. We're going after the big shots, the ones who already has everyone's attention. We're going after them. And if they commit their lives to Christ, I mean, all the peons will just fall right along. Sounds like good biblical strategy, doesn't it? And I'll tell you, as they work that out, for many of those campus heroes, they had merely gained yet another marvelous label to wear. 
they were now Christian heroes too. James, had he been present those days, surely would have been appalled and would have realized right away that it was not actually the church of Jesus Christ that they were building. And it was not the methods of God that they were employing. James, of course, was not present. But his spirit-inspired words were, and out of those words, this clarifying reality could have been found as it certainly was found by some. Here it is, third clarifying reality. Verse 8, keeping the royal law of Scripture is actually what will advance Christ's church in God's eyes. This is how he actually said it. If you really keep the royal law found in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. You are doing right. Don't choose among your neighbors. Don't decide which neighbor is worth your time. Don't choose which neighbor might make the greater impact for Christ. Don't choose the one that seems to you to be a a, a more appropriate target than someone else. If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, you see, James is saying that our task is not to strategize. Our task is not to get this ball rolling and get it rolling so powerfully that nobody could stop it once it gets going. He's saying our task is to love our neighbor as ourselves and to allow God to determine who our neighbors are. That is, who it is that crosses our path. Understanding that everyone who does cross our path qualifies as our neighbor. Both the rich man and the poor man who come through the doors. They've crossed our paths and everybody else in between. James would say, live your life, meet and worship, and receive with love and joy anyone who comes in, whether rich or poor, smart or confused, tall or short. Now, as we wrap up this morning, here's unsound thought four. God is going to judge us on the basis of how much we get done and how impressive we become. Do you think there are any Christian organizations in the world operating along that understanding? Oh, man. How big can we become? How impressive are we? You know, we have the best this and the best that. We have the biggest this and the biggest that. We have whatever it might be believing because we're doing it in Jesus' name, using his name, that God's going to judge all of us on the basis of how much we get done and how impressive we become. Now, that's a wonderful America. Any American understands that. The bigger, the better. Probably the people in James' day didn't need much of an explanation when he said that. Of course, it's production that counts. What else is there? Well, that's what lies behind the favoring the favored in the first place. For they are the ones that we have determined can help us get much done. 
I'm sure that there's more than one plaque on the wall of a church structure or on the wall of a Christian organization to some favored one who had more money than faith, but whose money was found to be very useful and whose reputation as a person of faith grew immensely as a result of his sought-after generosity. I'm sure there are many Christians, many churches, many Christian organizations who say nothing of many professing Christians who are counting on that unsound thought to bring them God's well done. In fact, when people came to Jesus, or when Jesus told the parable, in that day, he said, there'll be those who come to me with their list of accomplishments. Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't we even cast out demons, done miracles? In your name, haven't we done, done, done? And they're expecting to have the Lord not only say, well done, but to say it in capital letters and to turn around and say to the heavenly host, can you believe what these people, what this man has done? And Jesus said in that day, there's going to be many who approach me with that thought process fueling everything they've done in their life, and I will say, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. You didn't do any of that actually for me. You didn't do any of that actually led by my spirit. You didn't do any of that actually in my name, truly. But boy, you have impressed yourself. And you've oppressed others as well. See, to those kind of thinkers, James gives this final, this fourth clarifying reality. Verses 12 and 13, we pull out, God is going to judge us on the basis of how much mercy we show to those that we deem to be less worthy. Here's what he really says. Speak, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because mercy triumphs over all. Remember the Pharisee went into the temple, Jesus told the story. Pharisee, this sinful man, this tax collector, this most hated one, the one that any of the Jews would consider to be so far down, they wouldn't even bother learning such a man's name. And this tax collector, this publican, he went into the temple of all places. And he knew who he was. He knew what he had done. He knew how unworthy his life had shown itself to be. And he, he beat himself on the chest. He wouldn't even look up to the heavens as Jewish men typically would pray in that day. He was a Jewish man. But he looked down at the floor, beat himself on the chest, and he said, Oh God. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. Mercy triumphs over judgment, over law, over all of this. Our God is a merciful God, and we as his people should have just mercy oozing out of us whenever there's an opportunity to be merciful. That's what James is saying. It doesn't matter how big the building is. It doesn't matter how much it costs. It doesn't matter how much, how much anything. 
But what matters, he says, when it comes right down to it, is that you don't find a single human being that ever comes across your path, but what your heart can extend mercy to them if needed. And James is saying that's real Christianity. That's the real deal. And if you're wealthy, oh man, perhaps you can be more merciful to that person, more abundant to that person. Maybe you could be merciful to far more people and help them. But the point is, it's the mercy that counts, not the dollars that we're given. God is going to judge us on the basis, evaluate us on the basis of mercy shown to those who cross our paths. And if we stand around saying, worthy, worthy, uh, not worthy, not worthy, not I can't bother with them, not that person, you don't know the history we have. Not that person. So then God is going to evaluate us in a way we don't want to be evaluated. We want him to conclude you've done well. You've done well. And that doesn't mean that we're theological geniuses. It doesn't mean that we're millionaires. It doesn't mean that we've built great buildings or done great things. What it means is, according to James, is that we never met a person in need of mercy that we didn't offer it. And we didn't despise any of those who are going through a hard time just because we also know people who aren't. They can do nothing for us. These people can do all kinds of things for us. And James says, don't. Don't show favoritism. Don't make judgments. Don't do that. So if we wrap all of James' words together this morning, how do we handle favoritism? Well, just look at this final thought. It says this. Favoritism ends once we realize that all people are favorites in God's eyes. Try that sometime. Next time you come across somebody that just really irritates you. Some person that you know might be winding up to ask a favor of you and you've given them so many favors, you're out of favors. Or just somebody who the way they look, the way they act, the way they whatever, you know, just kind of, ah, let me look over here. The next time that happens and you've managed somehow to zero in on an individual, just say to yourself, that person is one of God's favorites. That person is one of God's favorites. Realize all people are God's favorites. God so loved the world, everyone in it. And yes, there's coming a judgment when some go to heaven and some will, will receive that judgment of God and will be separated from God forever. But until that judgment comes, we're living in a day of mercy and grace. And Peter says God would wish you know, even God can wish. God would wish that everybody gets saved. Because he loves them all. And as we follow after him, we cannot allow things in our lives that are completely contrary to the way that God is. And so James says, here's one of those things. 
categorizing people as those you like and those you don't, as those who are your favorites and not, those that you will favor with your time and effort and, and love and those that you will not. He says, we, we can't do that as a church. We can't do that as families. We can't do that as people because God doesn't do that. We should handle favoritism the way God does. We should extend it to everyone. I wonder what would happen if everybody we meet or that we have an interaction with, start with the people you kind of do like. Uh, start with them and just practice this week in every conversation you have. By the end of the conversation, just say to them, you know, I just want you to know, Linda, you're one of my favorite people. You know, I just try, you're one of my favorite people. Try your best to mean it. But see, that's the way God is. That's what James is saying. You know, and so mercy, sometimes to be able to say that automatically means we have to open the spigot of mercy a little bit. But then again, think of the spigot God opened to say to us, you're one of my favorites. I sent my son to die for you. I, I willingly took all your sins and just laid them aside, forgave them through my son's name, Jesus. And I'm just being merciful to you. You're my favorite. You're one of my favorite people. We should treat everyone like they're our favorite. You know, you're all my favorite. I wouldn't trade one of you for any of those people in any other... Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Can't favor you over anybody, but boy, are you my favorite. Let me just say at the close, because I forgot to say it earlier, we do have a Sunday coming up in three weeks that we want to celebrate the, the, the fellowship that we've enjoyed, Linda and I, for 50 years in serving some of God's favorite people and for the last 28 years, it's been the ones right here. Ten years ago, we celebrated our 40th anniversary, and I had been at Sun Life Church for 18 years. So 18 out of 40, I think I worked it out as 45% of my ministry was here. Ten more years have gone by, and now it's going to be 28 years out of 50. Well, that's like 56%. So I'm more a Sun Lifer than I was anything else. And I think God would forgive me if I just said, you know, Sun Life Christians are my favorite people. God bless you. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you are concerned about these kinds of attitudes. They can slip in on us so easily. Of course we make judgments between people. We have eyes. And we make those judgments frequently coming from a sinful heart, a fallen human nature. And we value people and disvalue people according to value that we put on them. Father, forgive us. James, way, way back 2,000 years ago, could say this, this cannot be in the church of Jesus Christ. You cannot show favoritism 
Because when you do that, you are no longer revealing God to the world. You're revealing something else. So now we pray that, that just in this one slice of God's nature, that we might step closer to him. And say, oh, Spirit, I confess, I, I have done that, I do that. It's a natural part of life. Forgive me and enable me by my, your Spirit to be so filled with mercy that favoritism and discrimination has, has no opportunity to arise to any kind of a controlling level in my life. We thank you for your word that's so pointed. We thank you for your spirit who encourages us to believe it and that we can follow it. And we pray your blessing upon these words now in Jesus' name. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.